Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life, and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to you we give glory together with your eternal Father and your all holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, last time, we finished with the story, um, or the genealogy, which led to, Teresa? Abraham. Abraham, exactly. And remember, we talked about the genealogy being flipped, right? The genealogy in chapter 10 being flipped backwards. Why, Angie? Why does, why does, why does Moses or the, the author of Genesis have the genealogy in a backwards thing? Teresa? It was um, bookending this story of... You know that, Angie. Right? The Tower of Babel. Right, by reversing the genealogy of the sons of Noah in chapter 10. In other words... The, the 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 youngest comes first, right? And then down the thing like that. Then and Shem ends up last, who is his firstborn son, ends up last in the genealogy. And then he repeats the genealogy after what event? The Tower of Babel, right? Remember Nimrod? <laughs> Nimrod! Don't do that. It's not going to work. Well, we're going to meet a couple of Nimrods tonight, let me tell you. And then off we went. So we were looking at, we, were, we, we followed through our time last week, and this is by way of kind of remembering, we followed the genealogies of the sons of God, right? Through, from, from Adam, through Abel, right? Replaced by Seth, and then Seth's whole genealogy, which we can't, the genealogy is like, it's like the bridge that ties the guys together and leads from, leads from Adam to who? Seven generations later? To Enoch. Enoch. Right, exactly. Enoch, who? walked with God, right? And he was taken up and he was not, right? The, the, the epistle to Hebrews tells us, a gen, uh, and this, by the way, for my Protestant brothers and sisters, this is how tradition works. See, Paul didn't wake up one day and have infused knowledge that, that that's what was meant in Genesis, that Enoch was assumed into heaven, that Enoch did not die, right? How did St. Paul know that Enoch did not die? Because the Jews believed that and handed it on generation after generation after generation. St. Paul writes it down in his epistles on bingo, presto bingo. It's included in divine revelation. But prior to St. Paul writing it, how did it get handed on? Oral tradition. 
Hello? Okay, so this whole nonsense about against traditional no. Okay, go go listen to my brother's uh, whole series uh, course on Saint Paul. All right, and then we came through the, the, the we came through the story of the flood. We saw it as that decreation recreation theme. Remember, Noah comes out as a new Adam. He he plants the garden, right? He eats from the garden. He drinks the wine of the grapes, right? He sins, and his sin redounds upon his children, right? And away we go. So we followed that line. And, and I just, and also we'll see this a lot tonight. Remember, Adam was the priest king of paradise. He was given dominion over creation. And he was to be in the image and likeness of God in blessing as God blessed creation. So Adam was supposed to bless creation. They're the priest king of paradise. And that, that priesthood and that kingship is handed on by the blessing of the father to the son. So the genealogy is a, is a following of the, the messianic line. We think of Jesus as the Messiah, right? Well, yeah, he's the long-awaited Messiah since the Babylonian exile, but he's not the first anointed king of God's people, right? Who's the first anointed king of God's people? Adam! And that gift is handed on generation after generation. The genealogy acts as this, as this, as, as this important communication of the, who the priest king, the head of the family is. We're going to see that break apart tonight when we do get the book of Leviticus. And yes, we're going to get there. We're here. Je uh, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses um, 1 through 10 is the story of the calling of Abraham. Okay. And notice here, it's verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, to your descendants, I will give this land. Well, first of all, we have to go back to chapter 11, verse 31 and following where, and you can, your eyes should just settle on the city of, where was he called from? From Ur of the Chaldees, right? Right, right there in, in verse 31, okay? And also back in verse 28, right? They're living out in Babylon in, uh, the, among the Chaldeans, right? And, and, so, and, and they're out there in the city of Ur, and he's called back, and he's given this land, which becomes the, we call the promised, promised land, promised. right? And the promised land is given to them. How? Look at verse seven, chapter 12, verse seven. To your descendants, I will give this land. Yeah. Well, what land is it that he's giving them? The land of the Canaanites. Canaan. Right there in chapter, right? The Canaan. Who are the Canaanites, Shane? So we're going to go back to the sons of, of, of Noah and that whole story, right? That's who he is. The Canaanites are his descendants. Abraham's called back in this land and he's given it as an inheritance, but it's not his land, right? I mean, it's, Canaanites said, isn't this unjust, guys? God steals the land from one people and gives it to another. Doesn't seem right to me, does it? Doesn't seem just that God would do this unless the people who are possessing the land are not the actual owners of the land. Yes? What do we know about the Canaanites? What do we know about the Canaanites? In Genesis chapter 9, verse 24, Canaan is to be a servant slave. Yeah, a slave to his brother Shane, who? Yeah, to Shem, right? Who receives the blessing of his father to become head of the household. Now, have you ever known a slave to own land? Land owning slaves? I don't think so. The very nature of slavery is that they can't, that they don't own the land, right? And here we have a bunch of people that have land, right? And Abraham is being called to 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 to, to dig it back. And he is, we know that Abraham, we know that this guy that is being given this land is the rightful descendant of 
His great, 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 great grandfather. Shem. And the Canaanites are supposed to be slaves to that family, aren't they? Mm, very interesting. Okay. Um, and, and here, Abraham comes, receives this, this land as an inheritance, which what tells you something about the Canaanites, like father, like son. Yeah. That they are in revolt against the one who they should have been serving. And that's what is this whole story. In chapter 12 through 14, just look at your Bible. Chapter 14, really. In chapter 14, we Abraham comes into the land. Well, he does a little thing here, which we're going to talk about in a minute. In chapter 12, verse 10, he actually ends up going to Egypt. Not a good idea. When It's a bad idea. Don't do that. Okay? Unless you have to, right? Joseph had to go to Egypt, but, but uh, not a good idea. Okay, Abraham's going to go down there. But anyways, he comes back after his little, you know, uh, vacation he takes in Egypt. And, uh, and, and lo and behold, in chapter 14, there's a civil war. Now, it's one of those chapters that you often skip over, which you're never going to do again, right? Anything that you feel like you want to skip over, don't skip over it. So here we are, chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of uh, Arophel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, and Shedalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bada, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of At. Okay, and then you're like, okay, forget it. I'm just not going to read the chapter, right? You can't do that. This, what happens is Abraham comes back in the land, and there's a civil war going on. There's a war going on in the Holy Land, okay? <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. They've been doing this from the very beginning. Now you got to ask yourself, who are these guys? Who are these guys? You can look, write it down. We're not going back there. You can look at chapter 10, verse 10, and chapter 10, verse 19, okay? At the end of the day, if you read over and you take some time, one of you crazy people at the Institute of Catholic Culture is actually going to do this. You got to go back and chase these guys down that are at war. And ultimately, who are these guys except for Shedelomer? Shedelomer is actually one of the descendants of Shem, okay? But he, the guy goes and gets himself hooked up with the... The, the, the sons of Ham. And he goes and makes a, co a covenant with them and ends up warring against the sons of Canaan. So all of these guys are mixed up in, the, in this land that Abraham's being given as an inheritance, and they're all having a war over who's going to be able to control this land. Yeah? You can take a look at it on your own. In the end, toward the end of chapter 14, verse 17 and following, we get the story of Abram coming back into that land in the midst of the civil war, one of the groups of kings is victorious with Shedelomer, and they get and they and they they capture Lot. Yeah, Abraham's nephew. So Abraham goes up, he rocks Shedelomer, he takes Lot, takes Shedelomer's goods, all the things that he won in the in the fight, takes it for himself, and heads back down into the promised land. And bingo, he meets the great Melchizedek. In chapter 14, verse 17 is Melchizedek. Okay, Angie, come on, read it for us. Verse 17 and following, 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Chedilomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram, by God most high, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and 
the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. We have to do a little bit of geography and Peter's going to get ready to pull a map up for us to really understand. This is going to, this is, if you haven't done this study with me before, get, put on your seatbelt real quick. Okay. We're in chapter three. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter three. We're going to take a look at verse 24, the end of the cursing of Adam and Eve and the casting out from paradise. Chapter three, verse 24. Give it to us, Teresa. When he expelled the man, he settled him east of the garden of Eden. And he stationed the cherubim and the fiery revolving sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so which way is which way is exile in Genesis? Which direction is exile? East. Toward the east, exactly. Okay, we get this again in chapter 4, verse 16. The story of Cain. Cain's a bad guy, right? So he's got to be exiled like Adam was. And look at that. Go ahead, Teresa. Cain then left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There you go. So east becomes this direction of exile in the book of Genesis. Now, where is Abraham called from? We already talked about this. This is why maps are so critically important for you, Peter. Pull up the map. Okay. You see this line of dots that comes up kind of right to the left. It kind of swoops down and it's going from Ur and eventually it's going to end up in Jerusalem, right? That's basically the Fertile Crescent. So, so, so Abraham gets out, he thumbs it, right? Gets a taxi ride and they take the highway in those days, which was the Fertile Crescent. He takes it over and he ends up in the promised land. But I want you to do me a favor. If east is the, is the direction of exile, then west is going to be your direction of restoration. Notice if you draw a line directly east of, the, of Ur, what city do you hit? Jerusalem. Very important because now Abram comes to this place in the opposite direction of exile and he meets this character, Melchizedek, who is king of Salem. Salem. Where is Salem? Turn your Bibles with me to chapter to, to this book of Psalms, chapter uh, Psalm 76, verse 1. Teresa, go. Renowned in Judah is God, whose name is great in Israel. On Salem is God's tent, a shelter on Zion. Where is God? Where's God's tent? Where's the temple built? Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. Yeah. Jerusalem. Salem. Salem is the ancient name before Abraham. Abraham ends up tacking on Yeru. Okay, God will provide on this mountain, he says. You can, we'll take a look. Well, we're not going to take a look. You go listen to my talks on Abraham. Salem is the more ancient name for Jerusalem. Yes? So, so now Abraham is called from exile in the opposite direction. He hits the city of this guy, Melchizedek which is the city of Jerusalem, okay? So who is this guy, Melchizedek? We already talked last week about uh, Abimelech. Remember we talked about Abimelech? Yeah, Ab, father, with the I on there, Abi, my father, my father is king. The Melech, my, okay, and Abimelech eventually becomes the king and he still has his father as king. It's kind of an unfortunate name. Abimelech, uh, and now we have Melchizedek, Melech, Zedek. Okay, two Hebrew words. Who is this guy? Well, again, St. Paul comes true for us because St. Paul is a traditionalist. Yes, and he gives us the tradition. So turn your Bibles with me very quickly to Hebrews chapter 7. Angie, you got that? Chapter 7, verse 1. 
For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abram according to returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or with or mother or genealogy, and he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, hold on to that same part, because you guys are going to be like, hey, look, he's father, what you're going to tell us isn't true. I'm going to tell you something, who his father was, and you're going to know who his father was. There's a reason why St. Paul says he has no father or mother. We can come back to that during Q&A. Write that down, Peter, because somebody's going to ask that question. But regardless of that, I need you to go with me. And it's, and, and it's this, check this out. He says by translation of his name, right? Melech Zedek. Zedek means righteous. Melech means king. He is king of righteousness. When was the last time we saw a king of righteousness in the story? Noah, remember? Okay. Noah was a righteous man. Same with, with, uh, with uh, Enoch. Enoch was a righteous man. They're using that the word Zedek intentionally to tell you that they are the king of the throne of righteousness and the throne of righteousness. So the, the, Melchizedek is in his name. It's the throne name that he's given by becoming king of this throne. You see that? The throne of righteousness. And this is the guy that Abraham comes to. And surrounding this guy are the Canaanites who are in a civil war around the mountain and the throne city of the guy that Abraham comes and pays a tenth to. Okay. And what does Melchizedek do in chapter 14? I'm going back there. Very, come on. Genesis chapter 14. What does Melchizedek do when Abraham comes to him? Blesses, Blesses him. him. He blesses him. Now, we've seen this theme of blessing through Genesis, haven't we? What happens? What's the whole thing about the, the, the idea of blessing? God blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. What kind of a person has dominion? A king. Yeah? To bless, For a father to bless a son, God also blessed Noah, by the way, when he came out of the ark, right? And, and immediately he says, be fruitful, multiply, and then he gives them dominion over the animals. And he says, there's going to be fear now of you on the animals. But he gives them, is the same pattern, right? Um, uh, and now we have Melchizedek blessing. Well, I should say Noah then blessed Shem to be the head of the house. Yes. And now we have Melchizedek blessing Abraham. So the, when, when, when a person blesses another person in the early chapters of Genesis, they are handing on to the next generation the right to become head of the family, to become the priest king of God's kingdom on earth. Are you with me? The genealogies are more than genealogies. They are the list of the rightful heirs, the kings of the kingdom of God. So I ask again, who is this Melchizedek? St. Ephraim the Syrian, who is a doctor of the church because of his knowledge of sacred scripture, tells us this. This Melchizedek that Abraham comes to is none other than Abraham's great, 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 great grandfather, Shem, who became king due to his greatness. He was the head of 14 generations. In addition, listen to this, he was a priest and he received this priesthood from his father, Noah, through the rites of succession. 
Abraham would not have given him a tenth of everything unless he knew that Melchizedek was infinitely greater than himself. Far from injustice by God taking the land of one people and giving it to another. Abraham receives this land as an inheritance because it is rightfully his. And you need to understand one more point. It's going to help us out throughout all of salvation history. And that is the ancient Jewish people believed that, that Jerusalem was the original location of the Garden of Eden. Now, the sons are coming home. And the sons of the devil, the Canaanites, will not give up easily. They will fight. And their fight, the war, will be a war over the soul, the heart of man. And that war will not be finished until the devil finally strikes at the very heart and center of that family when he crucifies God himself in the flesh and God will finally put a stop to the war because enough is enough and give us the opportunity through holy baptism to be restored into the original family which he had planned from the beginning the story of salvation the story of salvation history is the story of this war the next generations you know quite well Abraham Isaac Jacob who becomes Israel you know the stories quite well from your childhood. You can read them on your own. You know them well. We don't need to stop on all the things you already know. We need to build the bridges across the points which you don't know so that we can cross over safely from Abraham to, to Moses and the time of the Exodus. But as we do this, we need to be reminded to read literally, not literalistically. That is not at a simply a surface level to learn facts. It's good to learn facts. But the author of Genesis is trying to get something more across to us. I hope you've kind of gotten that with the genealogies. He's not just, he's not just giving you a list of names. He's giving you a list of names for a reason. He's putting them in a pattern for a reason. He's reversing those lists for a reason. And you have to allow that reason, the artist who wrote this book, to, 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 to paint that picture for you and allow those colors to come forth so you can begin getting everything out of this text that, uh, that God wanted there. An example of this is in chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 12, verse 10. Abram comes, Ur of the Chaldees, he makes his way to the Holy Land. So the first thing that happens is verse 10. Okay, and in verse 10, there's a famine in the land. He, get, he just finally finished. Imagine that. He takes his whole trip across the Fertile Crescent. He finally gets to the land. God says, here you go. And there's a famine in the land. Welcome home, Abraham. And what does Abraham do? Does he trust in the Lord? No, nope. he gets out of Dodge. He says, I love, I visited my inheritance. I've seen it. And now I'm out of here. And he heads down to God forsaken Egypt. And in God forsaken Egypt, Abraham is going to do a terrible thing, which is going to be repeated by his uh, again and again. And that is, he's going to, he's going to tell uh, Pharaoh that his that his wife Sarah is his sister. Sarah's going to end up in the in the you know you know harem, and and then Pharaoh's going to realize what's going on. He's going to release Sarah back to Abram, and Abraham's going to leave Egypt loaded with money. Okay, take a look at chapter twelve, verse or chapter thirteen, verse two. You see the silver and gold right there. I need to read it to you. See silver and gold. He comes yeah. out. 
The guy's loaded. This is going to happen over and over again. We'll come back to the reason why. But he's going to go down there. He goes down to Egypt. He comes back loaded. You say, well, that's not right. Abraham should have been, you know, God should have come down on him, right? Bad, bad decision, Abraham. Okay, no. Listen, there's a principle. And we see this over and over again is that oftentimes the, the authors of, of scripture, the ancient peoples didn't want to say that their father sinned. They will tell you how they sinned. They'll tell the story and let you draw the conclusion, right? They honored their father and their mother, right? It's just like Noah, okay? There's a certain respect that's given. You tell the story and let the reader draw his conclusions. Same thing happens here, right? Abraham comes back. Yeah, he's loaded with money, but what happens? What's he come back with? He comes back with his own harem, yeah? Just like Pharaoh, he now comes back and he takes Sarah's uh, maidservant for himself, yeah? Chapter uh, 12, verse 10, and the following, we did the whole thing of Egypt. I'm just getting down to my notes to make sure I don't miss anything. He comes back and, he, and, and Hagar's in his tent. And the temptation's a little too strong. And Hagar and Abraham, you know, and they have, the, they have a son, right? And his name is Ishmael, right? So the story is told to you, much like Adam and Eve, right? They fall and they come out of, they come out of the next thing you know. They come out of paradise and they have two children, right? Two boys. And those two boys are divided against each other. They're fighting because it's the incarnation of the divided heart of Adam. It's the incarnation of the divided heart of, of, of Abraham. Yeah. Ishmael and uh, Hagar and Ishmael versus uh, Sarah and Isaac. And this will be this will be a constant struggle, this divided heart that we find. And of course, when Abraham does come back to the promise, land, he's going to um, he's going to receive from God the covenant. Right. And that covenant is me a sign of the covenant in chapter 17. You guys read this, I hope and you highlighted it. What's the sign of the covenant going to be? Circumcision what this is a strange thing cut off the you know what what circumcision was an egyptian practice circumcision was an egyptian practice and now abraham comes back with egypt in his heart and egypt on his side with his sweetheart and god says you want to be in covenant with me you have to repent of your sins and as a sign and a mark of that covenant in your skin will be the sign of the Egyptians so that every single day you will remember what you did so that you will never do it again. Yeah. You want to live like the Egyptians, Abraham, you're going to walk like the Egyptians. Not too good. Of course, Abraham has a son. Some of you are, <laughs> Have a little gray hair up there. Remember that, you know, walk like the Egyptians. You guys remember that. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. That was Father Hezekiah's joke for the evening. Let's move on. Okay. Abraham has a son. What's Abraham's son's name? Isaac. Right. And Isaac's wife? Oh, oh Rebecca. Yep. And Rebecca becomes pregnant. So now we continue in our geology. Rebecca was pregnant with twins. Genesis 25. Give it to us, Teresa. 25 verse 22. But the children in her womb jostled each other so much that she exclaimed, if this is to be so, what good will it do me? She went to consult the Lord and he answered her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples are quarreling while still within you, but one shall surpass the other. 
and the older shall serve the younger. When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. The first to emerge was reddish, and his whole body was like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. His brother came out next, gripping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Okay, there you have it. Okay. You guys know the story quite well. Esau's yeah. the older son, right? But what happens? Esau goes out in the field. He's working while his lazy younger brother's hanging on the lazy boy, drinking soda pop. And, uh, you know, uh, he com- Esau comes home. He's hungry. And his brother, uh, Jacob, has got a, some lentils. What? You traded your birthright for lentils? Okay, lentils are actually delicious, but they're not that good. Stupid Esau <laughs> sells his birthright. He raises his birthright for it, right? And 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 um and and that's that's not bad enough, because when his father's on his deathbed, he's going to also steal the blessing of his father. Yeah, the blessing of his father, which means to steal what? To be to try to become. Why would he want to steal his father's blessing? Angela, why does he want to steal the blessing? He wanted the inheritance. Yeah, but what about the inheritance? He wants the throne. He wants the throne. Isn't that the story we've been following the whole time, guys? He wants the throne. So in chapter 27, you've got it there. You should have highlighted already because you read Genesis in your homework. Okay, there it is. He steals the blessing of his father. Okay, and... There's, a, there's a, a wrinkle here, though, that you need to pick up on, that it happens over and over again, because, of course, the author of Genesis is going to be telling you all sorts of moral stories here of what you should and shouldn't do, yes? And sins oftentimes follow us. Who's the instigator of chapter 27? Who, in, who's the one that instigates, who, says, who tells, who tells uh, Jacob to do this? Rebecca. Rebecca, right? Her, his, his, his mother. Why would she do this? She favored him, right? She favored him. Look back, Genesis chapter 25, chapter 25, verse 28. It says that she preferred her younger son. And so she she um she she encourages him in chapter 27. Look at chapter 27, verse 5. Go ahead, Teresa. Rebecca had been listening while Isaac was speaking to his son Esau. So when Esau went out into the country to hunt some game for his father, Rebecca said to her son Jacob. Listen, I overheard your father telling your brother Esau, bring me some game and with it, prepare an appetizing dish for me to eat. And I may give you my blessing with the Lord's approval before I die. There you go. There's the story, right? But now what happens? He steals the blessing because Rebecca encourages him to do it because if he doesn't get blessed, what's going to happen? He's going to have to leave the house. He's a male. He's going to have to leave the house And she's going to be stuck with her other son who she does not prefer. So in an attempt to keep her her youngest son, her favorite son with her, she has him try to steal the blessing, right? Now what Mm -hmm. happens is the story develops in in, uh, in chapter uh, 27, verse 41. Chapter 27, verse 41. Angela, go ahead. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts him by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, 
Flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's anger turns away. For mm-hmm. he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and fetch you from there. Why should I be benefit of both of you both in one day? Rebecca will never see her son again. Not alive. So what the sin that she committed in encouraging her son to steal the blessing in, becomes an incarnation in her life. The very things that she was trying. And, and my brothers and sisters, ultimately, the moral of the story is a story of faithlessness. Just like Abraham went down to Egypt. What should Rebecca have known? What should she have known from the very beginning? What was the promise that God gave her? That the younger would serve, that the younger would be over the older. Exactly. We already read the, the, the text, right? That it already was told to her, but she didn't trust in the Lord. And because she didn't trust in the Lord, she ended up losing the very thing she wanted most. Okay. All right. Again, you know, the story of Jacob, he goes to his uncle Laban's house. He falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. He works for seven years. And finally, the marital night comes. They blow out all the candles. And Laban sends not Rachel, but his other daughter. They consummate the marriage. They wake up in the morning. And lo and behold, he's married to the wrong girl. Yeah. So he comes out and he says, what have you done? And, and, And we can pick this up in Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, uh, where are we? Verse uh, 21. Angie, go ahead. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you with, with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done. Check, in- so, oh, slow down now. Notice what he says. Go ahead. It's nice and slow. It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete okay. the week of this one and we will give you the other also. Do you guys see what's going on here, right? Why does he say this? Because he knows what this guy tried to do. He tried to become head over his head. He tried to replace his brother. And so this, again, the incarnation of that reality is shown in the text as these daughters are given, these, these women are given to, to, um, to, to Jacob. Okay. So it's, you, again, reading literally means reading for what, what is the author trying to get across to you? What is the catechesis being given to God's people? Okay, there's more to the story than first meets the eye, more than a literalistic reading of the text. In chapter 32 of Genesis, Laban finally, after getting Rachel, finally joins, uh, decides to head home. Okay, in Genesis chapter 32, uh, verse 22, okay, he's coming, he's coming back to the promised land. And so he sends out in front of the guy, you know, Jacob just turns out to be a complete weasel. We see this happen a number of times where you're like, Dude, just be a man, okay? So what does he do? He gets ready. He knows that his brother Esau is going to come and kill him. So what does he do? 
he sends out all of his flocks and, and his and his wives and his children and all in front of him, okay? So that Esau meets all of them first, right? And so he's safe while he's putting at risk his 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 wives and his children. Okay, complete complete uh yeah, weakling here. Verse 22, keep going. Let's go. Uh Teresa, I don't know who read last. Teresa, go. So the gifts went on ahead of him while he stayed that night in the camp. In the course of that night, however, Jacob arose, took his two wives and his two maidservants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had taken them across the stream and had brought over all his possessions, Jacob was left there alone. Then some man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. When the man saw that he could not prevail over him, he struck Jacob's hip in its socket so that the hip socket was wrenched as they wrestled. The man then said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Okay, stop. Why does Jacob need the blessing? First of all, who is this guy? Yeah, your translation, I don't think it's some Sorry. man. I don't, you know, come on, that's kind of, come on. Okay, the same night he arose and took two wives and maids and his servant, and he took them. And verse 24, and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him. Well, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Teresa? What's your An guess? Angel. Yeah, God. he says, look, he says, I've seen, I've wrestled with God. Notice from, down on verse, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place uh, uh, Peniel saying, for I have seen the face of God. So who is this man who has the face of God? Yes, this is an angel he's meeting. Angel. And he wrestles with him all night. And he's struggling with God. And then he says, I need your blessing because the only person left that can bless him now to become head of the family is God, right? He has to receive this blessing before he meets his brother Esau. Otherwise, because you can't just steal the blessing. You can't just steal it. You actually have to receive it, right? And so he heads back. He wrestles with his angel. Ultimately, ultimately he has to undergo a conversion, right? And that conversion is given to us right here in this story as he receives a new name, right? The, the, Jacob means the, the one who supplants, who right, takes, takes his brother's place. He can't be that anymore, right? And he, and he re receives a new name, Israel, the one who, who, who strives with God, yeah? He receives this. And notice then the sign of this new relationship, this new covenant that is given here. He put his finger to his side or however it says it. And what happened? Teresa gives the verse. Oh, it's the hip socket. Yeah. The hip socket. Where is it? And we don't eat the hip verse. Yeah. Verse 31, verse 32. Therefore is it said that Israel did not eat of the sin of the hip. Okay. Whatever it's there. Okay. Verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the Jacob's thigh was put out of joint as he wrestled with God. So for the rest of his life now, just like Abraham, right? Had the, the knife. Now, the rest of his life, this man is going to walk with a limp so that by every step he takes, he will be reminded that he did not walk with God. He did not walk with his father, but he tried to steal what was not his to steal, right? And he'll be reminded of that every day of his life now. Okay, uh, Israel's sons. Which one become, becomes head of the household of, of, of Israel's 12, I mean, his 12 sons, right? Which one's his favorite? 
Joseph is his favorite. Is Joseph, Lori, is Joseph going to receive the blessing to be a head of the house? No, he's not. Okay. So who's the, first of all, who would you expect to become head of the house normally in normal circumstances, even though this gets flipped all the time? <laughs> yeah. The firstborn first son, one. right? Reuben. Okay. Now you can get, um, uh, it, look at chapter 29. Here's where all of your 12 sons are given to you. Verse 31 and following. Verse 32, you see the name Reuben in there. Verse 33 at the end, right before verse 34 is Simeon. Verse 34 at the end, Levi. Okay. Verse uh, 35 at the end, Judah, then she ceased bearing. See that? Right before verse 7, you got the name Dan. That's chapter 30, verse 7. Okay. You can read through that. Read through there. Grab all the sons. Highlight them with a particular, whatever your covenant color is, your kingship color, whatever it is. These are the, these are the 12 sons of Israel. Okay. Um, and like I said, Reuben should become head of the family. But Reuben is a moron. Okay. He's a complete moron. And I'm going to tell you why he's a moron. Because he should have received, he should have become head of the household. Why does he not become head of the household? Take a look at chapter 35. Chapter 35, verse 22. Angela, go ahead. While Israel dwelt in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. No! Why would it? He pulled a ham! What a nimrod! This guy was going to become the head of the household! And he goes and shacks up with his father's concubine so as to become head of the household when he didn't need to nimrod okay all right and 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 the next two sons are are not not much better okay well actually i like the next two sons because they they you know they're more sicilian in nature okay levi simeon okay simeon's the next son and then levi is the next son okay and now why is levi levi is important right because um there's a whole book right? Leviticus. Leviticus. Yeah, Leviticus. There's a whole book for Levi and his family, which comes next in your Bible. So, so now I ask you, are you, any of you Levites? Are any of you Levites? No, you're not Levite. Maura, you're not a Levite. So, so here's the problem. One of the problems that Teresa mentioned that we, we problems we face in reading our Bible, we might make it through Genesis to crazy enough. You might even make it through the genealogies. But you're not crazy enough to make it through Leviticus, right? Leviticus is a concrete wall. You hit it and you're done, right? You start reading all the, 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 the dietary laws and stuff like that. Well, it's not written to you. It's written to the Leviticuses, the, the, the Levites, right? So if you're not a Levite, then you probably don't. Have you ever, Peter, have you ever wrote, written, what's the, what's the book that the, the, the Latin priests have, Roman Catholic priests have the instruction turn right and walk three steps and turn left, open his hands and pinch his fingers, right? You always want to look for that, the A-OK sign. If priest is doing that at mass, he's all right, you know? So, no, but you don't read those books because they're not written to you, right? About every little step the priest and every supposed to, you don't read that because it's not written to you. No, Maura, you don't read that. And if you do, you're crazy and you probably like the book of Leviticus. So the book of is written for the Levites. We're going to talk about why that's the case. Okay. But the story of Simeon and Levi um, is, 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 is an interesting one. And, and I didn't actually, I skipped it in my notes to write 
down where it's at 34. Yeah, there you go. Okay. We're not going to read the whole story. What happens is they, these 12 brothers have a, have a sister. Her name's Dinah and Dinah's a good looking gal. Okay. She's out there walking around and one of these pagan godless heathens sees her and likes her and takes advantage of her. Mm, not good. Don't mess with the sons of God. Right. And, uh, and uh, you get that story in chapter 34, if you want to read it. So this guy, after he takes advantage of Dinah, goes to his dad and says, dad, I really like this girl. And his dad should have said, well, then you should probably court her. You know, you don't do what you just did. It's not going to go well. What has, unfortunately, the dad's a, is a little bit of a, you know, won't stand up to his son. So he ends up going to Israel and says to Israel, my son wants to marry your daughter. He really likes her. Will you give her in marriage? And now the story picks up in verse 13. Chapter 34, verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing, give her in marriage to you, uh, to, to, to give our sisters to, one, uh, to the uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you that you will become as we are, and every male of you be circumcised. This guy goes back to the camp and informs his family to all the guys. Guess what, guys? You're all getting circumcised. So they circumcise all the guys of the camp. Chapter 34, verse 25. Go ahead, uh, Teresa. On the third day, while they were still in pain, Dinah's full brothers, Simeon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, took their swords advanced against the city without any trouble and massacred all the males. <laughs> okay, so all these guys are trying to heal from being circumcised. They attack these guys and they decimate them, okay? So at the end of the day, these two guys are not going to be able to receive the blessing because of what they did. And uh, we'll, we're going to see that pick up. The next guy in line of, of those gene in that genealogy I gave you is a guy you probably recognize the name of quite well. And his name is... Judah. And in chapter 38 of Genesis, you can go there and read it for yourself. Chapter 38 is the story of Judah and his son. I'm not going to get into the details too much, just to tell you that Judah accidentally has relations with his daughter-in-law. Okay. I'll leave it at that. They have a son and they have twins, but the oldest son's name is Perez. Okay. Judah has a name, the son Perez, and uh, and uh, you can read that story on your own. The rest of those, the the the, the men of the family, right in Genesis thirty, we uh, 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 Rachel's maid because Rachel was barren. Ra Rachel's maid has two sons, Dan and Naphtali, right? Eventually, uh, Leah's Leah goes barren and gives her maid Zilpah to Israel and, and and Zilpah has two sons Gad and Asher chapter 30 verse 9 and following eventually Leah is able to have children again she has Issachar and Asher and Asher and finally Rachel Jacob's love uh is fertile God opens her womb 
And in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, she has two, well, she has a son, Joseph. Yeah, the favored son, right? Why the favored son? Because she's the favored wife. And it's the firstborn son of the favored wife, okay? That's why Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. And in chapter 35, verse 16, the story of the birth of Benjamin, their last son, their youngest son through Rachel, okay? There's all your sons of Israel. Uh, we need to do a little bit of work here in the Joseph story. It's so good. We got to do it. Jo the Joseph narrative. We know the story of Joseph quite well. We heard it from our childhood. I'll summarize it for you very quickly. His brothers sell, his, sell him into slavery because they're jealous that his, their father likes Joseph the most. They sell them into slavery. And of course, uh, as oftentimes happens in, in our lives and in the Bible, our sins follow us, right? What's going to happen to these 11 sons and their dad? They're going to end up in slavery, right? They sell their brother into slavery. They themselves are going to end up in slavery. We're going to see this happen over and over again, especially in the Babylonian exile when they will not honor the Jubilee year. They themselves are going to end up in, right? They won't honor the Jubilee year by giving freedom. We'll talk about that next week. They're going to end up in Babylonian exile. So you want to act like the devil, right? You want to be a slave master? You want to sell your brother into slavery? Well, guess what? You get to go live with the devil for a while. You get to go live with Pharaoh, who has a big snake on his head, okay? Um, and, uh, and that's the basic story. You know it well. Um, what do we need to talk about? A, a second aspect of this. Not only do our sins follow us, but that God can oftentimes bring good out of evil. And how many times in our lives are we witnesses to this? I look back at my own life. How many times I fell into sin? How many times would evil things happen in my life? You know, my mother died when I was nine years old. Um, and the situation in our family was terrible. My parents had divorced and, and, and it, was a, it was a horrible story. Maybe I'll share it with you someday. It was a horrible story. She ends up dying suddenly in the middle of the night. And um, if she had not have died, I would not be a Christian today. So I pray that God will have mercy on her, forgive her of her sins, in that, in that through this evil that we, uh, my family lived through, God was able to bring out blessings. Yeah, we see this in Genesis chapter 50. Let's just skip ahead for a second. Genesis chapter 50, when the brothers come to, um, to Egypt and their father dies and they're left there, uh, chapter 50, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, to his brothers, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it as an evil against me, selling me into slavery. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Right? Because it's true, Joseph, then the whole world comes to Egypt to be fed. So there's, there's these underlying themes and moral uh, uh, principles that we can get. Remember, again, we need to read into the story. But not just a simple surface level. Uh, we want to read the literal historical interpretation. But in addition to that literal historical interpretation we've been going over, right, the intention of the author, there's also another sense of scripture. In your catechism, paragraph 116, in paragraph 116, it says this. The literal sense is, uh, of scripture is the meaning conveyed by the words of scripture and discovered by exegesis following the rules of sound interpretation. All other senses of scripture are based on the literal. The spiritual sense, thanks to the unity of God's plan, not only the text of scripture, but also the realities and events 
about which it speaks can be signs, yeah, signs of a further reality, a deeper truth, yes? So the historical literal view is a seven days of creation, but there's a, the, the sign of the covenant built in there. Do you see that? And even more. One of the spiritual senses of scripture is the allegorical sense, the allegorical sense, or what we call the type, typological sense, and the catechism says this, through the typological sense, we can acquire a more profound understanding of the events by recognizing their significance in Christ. Thus crossing the Red Sea is a sign or type of Christ's victory and also the Christian baptism. Okay, fine. So there's this, there's this aspect of Joseph in the story that we can read into the story and, and understand Joseph as a type of Christ. And because he's a type of Christ, he's also a type of the restoration of Adam. Okay, notice um, that just as Jesus was, or should I say, just as Joseph was bound by his brothers, so Jesus is arrested and bound by the Jews. He's sold to a foreign power, just as Jesus is sold to the Romans. He ends up as Pharaoh's right-hand man and receives a new name. Look at Genesis chapter 41, verse 43. This was the other name I almost took when I... When I, when I was made a priest, okay? Uh, verse 42, okay? Angela, go. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and arrayed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and made him to ride in his second chariot and cried before him, bow the knee, thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no man shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanethephah. Zephanethaniah. You guys got to remember this one. You can use it at your coffee social, your Christmas party. Okay. A little Bible trivia there. Zephanethaniah. Go ahead. It's awesome. You should have a dedication. The icon of Zephanethaniah, right? Which means savior of the world. Okay. It doesn't say it there, but in Egyptian it means savior of the world. Joseph receives the name savior of the world. And how does he save the world? Look at, look at verse 53. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began. As Joseph had said, there was a famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was bread. He saves the world by feeding them with bread. Just like Jesus saves the world by, by feeding us with the Eucharistic bread. And then in chapter 47, verse 20, well, yeah, 47, verse 27, it says that Israel and his family came there, and there they, they, they were fruitful, and they multiplied. Yes, so Joseph is not only an image of Jesus, he's also an image of Adam. And I'm going to just share with you a, 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 a beautiful biblical, uh, biblical liturgical text that in the Byzantine tradition we sing during Holy Week, which is, a, which is look, liturgy is where you learn the faith. Yes? Um, remember the story of Joseph when he's first sold into Egypt. Before he goes to Pharaoh's house, he's, he's bought and he's sold into Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife is attracted to him, right? And eventually Potiphar's wife finds Joseph in the house alone and she goes after him and he tries to get away from her because look, why, how attempt, I mean, this story, if, if, you, if, you, under, if you see this story in the context of the rest of what we've been learning, how many guys have been trying to get, become head of the house by having relations with the wife of the guy who's the head of the house. And here we finally find a man who is so filled with virtue 
then when he receives the opportunity to do just that, he flees from it. And in fleeing, Potiphar's wife grabs hold of his garment and rips it off of him and uses it as evidence against him. Remember the story? And here's what this beautiful biblical text, I'm going to, Peter's going to play it for you. You can hear it sung, but I'm going to read it to you so you can hear the words, okay? The serpent found a second Eve in the Egyptian woman and plotted the fall of Joseph through words of flattery, right? If you have relations with me, you will become head over Potiphar. But leaving behind his garment, Joseph fled from sin. He was naked, but unashamed like Adam before the fall. Through his prayers, O Christ, have mercy on us. I'll read it one more time. Peter, we're going to play it, okay? The serpent found a second Eve in the Egyptian woman and plotted the fall of Joseph through words of flattery. Believing behind his garment, Joseph fled from sin. He was naked, but unashamed like Adam before the fall. Through his prayers, O Christ, have mercy on us beautiful singing of this uh, this um, biblical and, and, and this hymn in the church done in the Byzantine tradition during Holy Week. Glory to the Father and to Chapter 49, the blessing of Israel, and then we're going to be into the book of Exodus. Chapter 49 uh, is, is the whole of the blessing of, right, as, as Israel is on his deathbed, he calls his sons to him, and he begins giving them their blessings. And notice the blessings now. Chapter 49, uh, well, start with verse 1. Chapter 49, we're going to start with verse 1, Teresa, and we're going to read through verse 12. Jacob called his sons and said, 
gather around that I may tell you what is to happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. You, Reuben, my firstborn, my strength and the first fruit of my manhood, excelling in rank and excelling in power. Unruly as water, you shall no longer excel. Mm -hmm. For you climbed into your father's bed Mm -hmm. and defiled my couch to my sorrow. Simeon and Levi, brothers indeed, weapons of violence are their knives. Let not my soul enter their counsel, or my spirit be joined with their company. For in their fury they slew men. In their willfulness they maimed oxen. Remember, be, remember what they did because their 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 sister Dinah, right? Yeah. Go ahead. Cursed be their fury so fierce, and their rage so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob, disperse them through Israel. You, Judah, shall be your brother's praise, your hand on the neck of your enemies. The sons of your father shall bow down to you. Judah, like a lion's whelp, you have grown up on prey, my son. He crouches like a lion recumbent, the king of beasts, who would dare rouse him. The scepter shall never depart from Judah. What's a scepter? What's a scepter? Who, what kind of person has a scepter? What's that? Yes. The scepter will not depart from you until it comes to the one, right? Now, now Moses is prophesying the coming of Christ. Go ahead. The scepter shall never depart from Judah or the mace from between his legs while tribute is brought to him and he receives the people's homage. He tethers his donkey to the vine, his purebred ass to the choicest stem. In wine, he washes his garments, his robe in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. Okay, to verse uh, 33, chapter 49, verse 33. Go ahead and finish that out, Teresa. When Jacob had finished giving these instructions to his sons, he drew his feet into his bed, breathed his last, and was taken to his kindred. Okay, so now Judah will become the heir apparent to the throne. He received the blessing of his father. And through Judah now, the Jews will descend. Yeah, we call them the Jews because of Judah. Okay, the Jews will descend. And from this this line, the scepter will not depart until it comes. My translation, I think, is the middle. Until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay, Um, so Israel dies in chapter 50, verse 22. Angela, go ahead. From verse 22 to the end of the chapter. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath of the sons of Israel, saying, God will visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Mm. Do not, I love that, that, I love that passage. Do not leave me here. Yeah. Um, uh, um, we, we move now uh, into the story of the Exodus, there's, Exodus but there's now a change in, in how we're going to be approaching the text, because 
This is going to happen twice in our text, in our in the story of salvation history. Actually, kind of three times. Uh, and that is that we have been following the line of the priests, kings of God's people, right? The heads of the household, the kings of the kingdom, who are also the priests of God's people. But this is going to change now in two ways. It's going to change in the book of Exodus for, for another reason we'll talk about in a minute. But it's also going to change right here at the beginning of the story of Exodus, because if you are the king of a people who has been conquered, the last thing you're going to do is stand up and announce that you're the king, right? Because they will kill you. And so now, from this point until all the way to King David, till they come back into the land and they're safe again, the kings of God's people are going to go underground. Generation after generation are not going to be known. And they won't be known until it's revealed at that time. The same is going to happen, by the way, in the genealogy of Jesus. There's going to be a whole time period. And we're going to pick up this time period, too, where it goes underground. Matthew, when he writes the genealogy, is revealing for the first time, just as we're going to see during the time of the kings, during David, revealing for the first time that the genealogy has not been lost. And there have been generation after generation of kings who have lived undercover so that they might pass on the blessing of God to the next generation. Okay, so they disappear from the scene. Okay, at this point, the story of the book of Exodus is about what? You know the story, right? You, you, you've all watched the movie, right? <laughs> so you, all, you all know the story of the book of Exodus. What's, what, what's it about? This is why popes, by the way, write their encyclicals the way they do. The encyclical is written where the first major word of the encyclical is the title. Did you know that? Okay, it, it becomes the title. And similarly, they're following the ancient practice, right? In the beginning, Barashit. But Elohim, in the beginning, Genesis. Yeah, the word beginning. So now in the in the in the uh, in the story, the most ancient name for this book is not Exodus, but Shem. Okay, because in you see that in the first things. There are the these are the names of the sons of Israel. So this the most ancient name in this book is the, the book of Shem. But what's it about? It's about the Exodus, which means. Yeah, look at your emergency exit light. Yeah, an exit, right? It's their exit out of Egypt. That's what the story of the book of, uh, of Exodus covers. Um, and then the first, the major figure now that stands, that comes forward is not Judah or his son Perez, right? And that we, we looked back, remember the, the story of Judah and the unfortunate situation where he mistakenly has relations with his daughter-in-law and they have a son and his son's name is Perez. Perez is the next in the line. But we don't find Perez stepping forward in Egypt or Judah stepping forward by that matter in, in Egypt. No, no. Who's the, who's the major figure that comes forward? Moses. Okay. But Moses is not the head of the household. He's not the, heir, the rightful heir to the throne of God. He's from another tribe. Look at chapter two, verse one. And Moses got to risk his life to go to Pharaoh, right? God can't risk the head of the family going there. So the head of the family conquers down, he hides, and sends Moses instead. Okay, what tribe is Moses from? He's a Levite, right? He's not a he's not from the tribe. He's not a Jew. He's not from the tribe of Judah. He's a Levite. Okay, and that's going to come out here uh, in the story as we as we proceed. Remember, we're about to get a whole book written to the Leviticuses, right? The sons of Levi, and Moses is one of them. All right. The 10 plagues that we encounter here in, 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 uh, in Exodus 
Each one of the plagues is against one of the gods of Egypt. The, 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 the Egyptians were pantheists. They worshiped virtually everything. So the, 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 the plagues which God sends upon Egypt are, are uh, condemnations of the Egyptian gods, okay? For a very good reason. The book of Genesis, well, this is the book of Exodus and the book of Genesis, written tra tradition is that Moses wrote these texts, um, are, are written during the time of the Exodus. They're apologetics. The whole of the condemnation of Egypt is contained in the condemnation of the gods of Egypt, right? One of the gods, the frog god, they worship the frog god, and, and, and it comes to us in English kind of funny, hoppy, okay, the frog god, not because of the hoppy that's an English word, but it's funny, and it was hoppy, you can remember it. Hoppy was their god, and, and so what, what's the plague? God sends so many frogs into Egypt that they cannot even walk down the road without smashing under their feet the gods that they worship and then to make matters worse the frogs die and then the stench of the egyptian gods is released yeah the nile river was was worshiped as a god so god turns it to blood all of the all of the plagues are against are apologetic against the egyptian gods why because the whole book of exodus has one purpose to it yeah the purpose is not to is not to get people to the promised land. We read it that way. It's 40 years of wandering. The goal is to get to the promise. It's not the initial goal of the book of Exodus. The initial goal of the book of Exodus has everything to do about worship. Because the people of God find themselves now very confused. Right? God has made us. He's revealed himself to us. And suddenly we're worshiping all sorts of things that are not the true God. Um, uh, the whole of the book of Exodus is to bring the people back to a monotheistic religion, to worship the one true God. And you get this in, in, in multiple times, but we'll just for Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Angie, go ahead. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the sons of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who am. And he said, say this to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Okay, I'm going to skip this. Go to verse 18. That's what I wanted. And they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now we beg you, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hands and strike Egypt with all the wonders. That's enough. You guys know the story, right? So what's the original purpose? Is not to get them to the Holy Land, it's to get them out three days, right? They got to go out of Egypt to sacrifice to God. Why? Why? They, they, they can't sacrifice the gods of Egypt in Egypt, right? It's like going to India and getting out a cow and slicing its neck open. You're going to die, sucker. Not going to work. Okay. So they got to get, God's got to get them out of Egypt so that they're free to worship. Yeah. That's the purpose of the Exodus. But because of Pharaoh's hardness of heart, the thing just gets worse and worse and worse. Okay. The whole purpose of the book of Exodus, the center and core of it is all about worship. If you read it in that light, you're going to start to understand it more. Okay. And we're going to see that kind of develop as we look through the thing. Well, of course, one of the things that they're, that the Egyptians didn't worship was, was the pig. Okay. Which is why, which is why Israel was not allowed to eat it because it was one of the staple diets of the Egyptian people. 
They yearned for the flesh pots of Egypt when they were in the desert. And what are the flesh pots of Egypt was the staple diet of the Egyptians. They wanted leeks and cucumbers, remember? They wanted, they remember their bellies being full with the food of the Egyptians. God says, no, 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 can't eat that anymore. You have to eat the gods of the Egyptians because they're not gods at all. The whole of the story of the book of Exodus is about worship, okay? Everything. It's a question whether, whether they will be able to get out of Egypt to worship and having gotten out of Egypt to worship, whether they will be able to get Egypt out of them. And unfortunately, having gotten physically out of Egypt, time and time again, they show that they have Egypt in their hearts. One of the gods of the Egyptians was the calf god, by which the firstborn, the cult of the firstborn, okay? Now remember one of the plagues, the final plague, the, 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 the one that did it, was when the firstborn, during Passover, when the firstborn died, Yeah. The cult of the firstborn was the cult of the god Apis. The god Apis was signified for the Egyptians as a calf. We're about to see a story in which God's people carry Egypt in their heart and begin doing in the desert what the firstborn were doing in Egypt. Remember the role of the firstborn of God's people and what they should have been doing as priests and kings of God's people. Instead, they begin to worship at a false altar. We'll see that in just a moment. Part of the story of the Exodus. You know the story quite well. As I said, you've watched the movie before. Um, and again, the question is whether they will be able to walk, not like the Egyptians, yeah, to walk with their father Israel, to be faithful to God. Exodus chapter 12 begins um, accounting, which is going to be important for us over the next couple of books. Chapter 12, verse 1, is the story of the Passover, yeah? It's given a timestamp for us, and that timestamp is going to be super important for us as we follow this, this story, okay? Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall stand at the head of your calendar. You shall reckon it the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel, on the 10th of this month, every one of your families must procure for itself a lamb, one apiece for each household. If a family is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join the nearest household okay, in procuring. Stop. stop. I was looking at my notes and I skipped the point that is the most important point. Notice it's the beginning, right? It's the first month of the first day of the first month of the first year. Yeah. And they're going to start counting 14 days to Passover. This is a new beginning for Israel, new creation, a restoration, okay? And it begins here in Passover. We're going to follow this timestamp. Write down your notes. What, what, what verse is it there? Verse, this, okay, verse two. This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation, okay, begin counting, right? To the 10th day and so forth. So that timestamp is going to be critically important for us. Mark this as the new beginning. Chapter 12 verse one and following uh they leave egypt and of course the the ultimate question i'm just gonna do a little side note for you guys and let you go and research this on your own during the week but i'm gonna give you some some things to write down we're not gonna go back to it as i, I told you before genesis and exodus are apologetics genesis is a super apologetic right the whole story of genesis chapter one 
is to tell God's people that the gods of the Egyptians are not gods at all, right? The moon god is not a god. God, the one true God created it, right? The sun god that you worship, not a god at all. The true God created it, right? It's an apologetic against the Egyptians and a catechesis for God's people. And this, and the catechesis goes on throughout the book of Genesis. And this is another moment in which Genesis acts in a similar way. What's the fundamental question that is on the people's mind? Not on the people's What's driving the people to distraction? What's, what's really on their heart as they're walking out of Egypt after the Passover? The Egyptian, the firstborn are dead. Okay? And they're leaving Egypt. And what are they afraid of? What are they afraid of? Angela, what, are they, what would be on your mind right now? They don't know where they're going to go, so they don't know how they're going to eat. Or Is God going to take care of them, right? right? Is God going to be faithful? Is this whole cockamamie plan of Moses going to work, right? This is what is fundamentally on their minds. Will God be faithful to them? Notice and write these down. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 and 16. Genesis chapter 26, verses 1, 6, and 12. Three stories in Genesis that tell the exact same story, okay? Moses or Abraham twice and his son Isaac once leave the Holy Land and they convince a foreign ruler that their wife is their sister. Three times that foreign ruler takes the wife into his harem and three times they leave richer than they showed up. And God's people are known throughout salvation history as his bride. The question of the bride is whether her husband will be faithful and whether they will be able to come out of that foreign land. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says, for a thing to be true, for something to be known as true, there must be three witnesses. Genesis three times shows the woman taken into the household of a foreign ruler and three times comes out safely with more money than they ever had before. And in Egypt, God's bride is taken into the harem of Pharaoh, made a slave in his house. And the question of God's people is whether God will be faithful. Moses writes in Genesis three times the story of God's faithfulness so that God's people will be catechized that the truth of the matter has already been revealed, that they will come out of Egypt and they will come out loaded with Egyptian gold, and God will take them back to the promised land. Okay, go out, do that little Bible study on your own. Um, as I said before, we need to read for what the author intended, not just the history, not just the, 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 the top of the story, right? We need to read into the story and see it for what it is. I have a note here that I want to make sure I don't, um, right there, mm-hmm. Moses struck the Red Sea. This is an example of this. There's a principle in catechesis, guys, that the law of prayer is the law of belief. This is why the liturgy is the liturgy is the place where catechesis happens. Sunday school is fine; it can can be helpful, but it's the liturgy which reveals to us the truths of our faith, and this is an example of that. Okay, um, and I'm, again, I'm going to share with you a, a Byzantine text. This is what I know, but the Roman liturgy is also, especially the traditional Roman liturgy full of these beautiful hymns, which are catechetical in nature, which teach you the truth about 
what's taking place. Yeah. Listen to this. I'm Vincenzo is going to sing it for you here in a moment about Moses dividing the Red Sea as a sign of the power of Jesus's cross as Moses cut the Red Sea and drew it apart and then brought it back together again. He made the sign of the cross over the sea. Listen to Vincenzo. Come on, jump up here, son. We sing this. We sing this during certain parts of the year during morning prayer. Um, I'll read the text to you, and then he's going to sing it because my son can sing very beautifully, okay? Much nicer than I can. Moses struck the Red Sea with his staff so that Israel could cross on foot. When he brought the staff down, the waters covered Pharaoh and his chariots. Thus, Moses prefigured the power of this invincible weapon, cross. Let us sing to Christ our God, for he has been glorified. Moses struck the Red Sea with his staff so that Israel could cross on foot. When he brought the staff down the water, covered Pharaoh and his chariots. Thus did Moses prefigure the power of its invincible weapon. Let us sing to Christ our God. For he has been glorified. There you go. That's how you catechize children. Um, Lex orande, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. Uh, chapter 19 of Exodus, Exodus 19. Ch chapter 19, verse 1. Notice the timestamp given to us, Angela. Go ahead. On the third new moon, after the sons of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim. There, there you go. They're in the wilderness of Sinai. They're the foot of Mount Sinai. How long does it take them to get out of Egypt, to camp at the, at the Red Sea, cross the Red Sea, and make their way to, 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 to Mount Sinai? How long does it take? Three months, three right? Months. Three months, a cycle of the moon. It's about, about 30 days, right? About three months it takes them to get to Mount Sinai. Now they're camped at Mount Sinai. In chapter 19, verse 15. Chapter 19, verse 15, Moses says to the people of God, get yourselves ready. God's going to visit you. I got to do a little side thing, Peter. I'm sorry to say it, but Advent is a time of fasting. And if you don't get yourself ready, you're not going to be ready. So Moses says, get yourself ready, not by fasting from food, but fasting from marital relations, because what's about to take place is going to take a lot of self-control. Okay. Chapter 19, verse 15. Go ahead, Angela. And he said to the people, be ready by the third day. Do not go near a woman. Okay, there he is. It says, no marital relations. Get yourselves ready for three days. See if you can practice a little self-control. Yeah. And as it turns out, God descends in a fire upon the mountain. And the people of God say, Moses, we ain't going up that mountain. No, how? no way, no how. Why? It doesn't say it explicitly, but because they didn't practice self-control, right? They, 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 they didn't do what Moses had said to get themselves ready by fasting. And so they, they send Moses up by himself. He's up there and he's up there for a while. Yeah. And the people of God see the fire and the clouds and the mountain, the thundering and so forth like that. And Moses is up in that. And they begin to lose hope. And they say, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. Yeah, you know the story well. Turn to uh, Exodus chapter 32, the intervening chapters, Moses up on the mountain, chapter 32, verse 1. Go ahead, Angela. 
When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to, to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods, who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to him, to them, take off the rings of gold, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold, which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a molten calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're not playing on the jungle, Jim. I can pretty much tell you that. All right. They rose up to play. Yeah. The god Apis was worshipped by the firstborn of Egypt, the calf god by entering into you know by rising up to play okay moses comes down from the mountain in verse 19 go ahead and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing moses's anger burned hot and he threw the tables out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain i'll just stop how's it described they rose up to play and began to dance with one another And who was engaged in this worship of the firstborn? The firstborn. The very ones that had been brought to Sinai so that they might come to worship the true God end up becoming priests of a pagan cult. And the results of this moment are disastrous. It is a critical turning point in the story of Israel. Let's keep reading chapter 32, verse 21 through 24. Go ahead, Angela. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought a great sin upon them? This is, this is another Nimrod moment. Okay. The lamest excuse in the history of salvation. Okay. Go ahead. You gotta love this. You read, read scripture with a little bit of humor. Okay. Go ahead, Angela. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. And there came out this calf. (laughs) What a surprise. Yeah. Okay. Verse 25. Keep going. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Okay, stop. Why? Why did the sons of Levi come to Moses at this moment, Teresa? Because he's a Levite. Yeah, he's like, hey, who's on my side? So his, his brothers come to him, his family comes to him. They're like, we're with you, Moses, right? Now, this is the critical moment at this moment. Notice the language. Angela, keep reading, but just a slight bit slower. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put every man his sword on his side and go back and forth from the gate to gate through the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. 
And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. And Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. There you go. This is the moment when the Levitical priesthood comes to power. Okay. Prior to this moment, the Levitical priesthood did not exist. Prior to this moment, the priesthood of God's people was the priesthood of the firstborn. It was the priesthood which Judah received from his father, which, which uh, had been passed down from Abraham, which he had received from Shem, Melchizedek, right? By the rights of succession, as St. Ephraim says. But at this moment, when the firstborn of God involved themselves in false worship, they abdicate their position, and the Levites come to fill in the spot. The Levitical priesthood is a band-aid on God's original plan. It was not God's original plan. And it's at this moment that the book of Leviticus is stuck into the story. Okay? This is why it's very confusing. We read through Genesis, Exodus. At the end of Exodus, we begin reading Leviticus. Bad idea. It's not written at the end of Exodus as the next story. It's written right here to tell the Levites what they're supposed to do because they don't know how to worship God because they're not the firstborn. Okay? The whole of the Levitical priesthood comes in, or the, the book of Leviticus comes in right here if you want to read the book of Leviticus about how they're supposed to turn to the right, turn to the left, and flash the AOK sign. You can do that if you're into that kind of stuff. If you're not into that stuff, I got great news for you. You can skip the book of Leviticus. Yes? Because you're not a Levite, so Leviticus is not written to you. There's things in Leviticus you don't want to skip, but in general, you can, you can say, the book of Numbers now, let's go, we're going to skip to the end of the story now, right? There, to the end, to when they're about to leave Sinai, chapter 40. Let's go there, Exodus chapter 40. Okay, well, Moses got to go get the new, uh, the new tablets because he smashed them and, uh, and uh, that kind of stuff. That happens all in there. And chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go ahead, Angela. On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle. First day of the first month, what year? Remember, we came out of Egypt. It was the first day of the first month of the first year in, in uh, right? of For Passover in Egypt. They go three months to Sinai. They spend the rest of the year there at the base of Sinai. And now it's the second year. So there's a whole story about keeping Passover here. It's going to take them longer to keep Passover for a particular reason. You want to go do the research. It's a great story. I'm not going to do it right now. But here in chapter 40, they're ready to go. Okay. Um, verse 33. Chapter 40, verse 33. Go ahead. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud abode upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would go onward. Okay, so they're, here they're ready to go, right? They're camped, they're built, they're ready to go, they're packed up, they're going to go. And chapter, look at Leviticus gets in your way. Turn to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. Go ahead. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, 
in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So you see how numbers begins, it overlaps right there at the end of Exodus, right? And begins to tell a story. So you can go from Exodus, the end of Exodus to the beginning of numbers, okay? And look at chapter three, verse one, go ahead. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. There he is. He's there. And the Lord said to Moses, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron, the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall perform duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. Okay. Verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn that opens the womb among the sons of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel. Both of man and of beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. There you go. All right, guys. So instead of the firstborn, you see the transition that happens right there, right? The next book in your Bible uh, fits in about uh, how they're supposed to worship, right? Rules of how there's all these details, sorry, about the book of Leviticus. Um, Why? Because, look, if my children are not obedient, what do I do? I say to them, you know, Vincenzo, make, make your bed, right? And if they're not obedient, then I'm going to bring them in the room. I'm going to say, son. Let me explain to you. On Saturday morning, when you get up, you got to walk down that hallway, right? And you got to do it exactly like this. That's exactly what happens in the book of Leviticus. And it happens again with the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy work exactly in this way, okay? Numbers chapter 7, verse 1. If you want to hold your hand in Exodus chapter 40 and chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, You can see all of this happen. Go ahead, Angela. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the leaders of Israel, heads of their father's houses, and the the leaders of the tribes who were over those who were numbered, offered and brought their offerings before the Lord, six covered wagons and 12 oxen, a wagon for every two of the leaders and for each one of the ox. They offered them before the tabernacle. Okay. The Lord- now, now walk with me for a second of what's happening here. At this moment, they're about to leave. Look at verse 12. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Abinadab of the tribe of Judah. Verse 18. On the second day, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, the leader of Issachar, made an offering. And on the third day, verse 24. He's going to go down now and each the heads of all the, the, the families, the firstborns of the families are going to come and they are going to offer their offering so that they can be relieved of their duty as priests. Okay. And the book of numbers is going to continue uh, like this as the, as the people of God are now going to leave Mount Sinai and begin their journey across the desert. Okay. We looked at chapter seven, verse 12. I want to make sure I don't miss anything. Look at chapter eight. Verse 16, now the firstborn of the family have done their duty. They've given over their goods. They've paid their tithe. And now the transition can take place. Go ahead. Chapter 18, verse 16. For they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. Instead of all that open the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel, I have taken them for myself. 
For all the firstborn among the sons of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day that I slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. Okay, and who is he consecrating for himself? The Levites, right? So the transition then takes place. Chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 11, they leave, they finally leave Sinai. So you see, okay, I'm going through all this because the first few chapters of Numbers gets a little bit confusing unless you understand this transition which is taking place as they leave Mount Sinai. But if you understand that transition, then the first few chapters of of Numbers will not be a roadblock to you, okay? So notice in chapter 10 now, what did I say? Verse 11, go ahead, give us our timestamp, Angela. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the See right there, it's Exodus, it's the end of Exodus and Numbers right there, connecting. Okay, go ahead, read another verse. The cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle of the covenant, and the sons of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. Okay, verse 33. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And the, and whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, I love this point because this, in the Byzantine tradition, the priest sings this on Pascha, on Easter, to begin the liturgy of Easter Arise, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered, and let them that hate him flee from before thy face. And we begin the Paschal liturgy. Easter is not the end of Lent. Easter is the beginning of our journey to paradise. It's the beginning of our journey to the promised land. Yeah? Not the end of Lent. It's beautiful. This is why liturgically, the liturgy teaches us the truth. And if you know that, and you know where this comes from, then you understand in the liturgy what's taking place. Yeah, it's a new beginning for us. Okay, they cross the desert. Turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. And in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month. Whoa, 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 whoa. How long is it from Mount, first of all, what's Mount Horeb? It's, it's another name for Mount Sinai, okay? And, and, and where's Karnash Barnea? It's right outside the promised land. It's, on, it's like right on the other side of the Jordan River. How long does it take to get from Mount Sinai to the promised land? 11 days. And those 11 days will take God's people 40 years. Why? In Numbers chapter 13, go back to Numbers now. And if you're getting tired of flipping, I'm sorry, but it's just the way you got to do Bible study. In Numbers chapter 13, they they get there, right? Deuteronomy is written in a few. I'm going to tell you why Deuteronomy is written in just a moment, but it gives us that timestamp of how long it actually takes. But in Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, they arrive at the same spot. They arrive there and and Moses says, send the people of God out into into the land. He says, get the heads of the families, the firstborn. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, send men to to spy out the land of Canaan, which I give to the people of Israel from each tribe of their fathers, shall you send a man, everyone a leader among them, right? And among these guys are two important people, Caleb from the tribe of Judah, Mm -hmm. Caleb from the tribe of Judah, right? Um, And Joshua, the son of Nun. These two guys are going to be of the heads of their families among the 12 representatives of the tribes. They're going to go in, in chapter 13, they're going to spy out the land, okay? Numbers 
13, verse 17. Go ahead, Angela. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev yonder and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds. And verse 20. They, okay, verse 20. And whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there is wood in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season for the first ripe grapes. Okay, they go into the land. You can read it there. They come out. It describes their, what they find there. A cluster of grapes. It was so big. They had to carry it on a pole between two men. Yeah. And who do they find living there? The Nephilim. Giants are living in the land. Why? Because you got you to be thinking in terms of the biblical story of the return. They're returning now and entering into the promised land. They're returning into paradise. And there, what do they discover? The fruit of paradise is miraculous. Mass, like grapes the size of watermelons. And men that are eating that food of, of, of the promised land. And they're growing into become like giants. They come out of that land and they come back to the camp. And what do they do? They report two things. Okay. Chapter 13, verse 25. Go, Angela. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw that the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses says, and let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people. Verse 32, so they brought the people of Israel an evil report of the land, which they had spied out. Chapter 14, verse one. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and wept that night. And all of the people of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation and to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this in this wilderness. Look at verse 26. Read us from verse 26 down now through 32, and we'll conclude our time together. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, how long shall this wicked congregation murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the sons of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of all your number, numbered from 20 years old and upward, who have murmured against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But, but your little you ones, but your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in this wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for every year, for every day, a year, you shall bear your iniquity 
40 years from chapter 14 to verse chapter 22 is the story of those 40 years. You can read that as your homework you like, but we're at a good stopping point here. They're going to wander in those, in those chapters. I'm going to encourage you to pick up this story in numbers chapter 22 for your homework chapter 22 um, and chapter 25. I'm just looking at what I want you to read chapter 22 and chapter 25. And I'll give you the crib notes really quickly. After the 40 years wandering, they come and they camp in the plains of, uh, of Moab, Jordan, right across the Jordan, right across from Jericho. And there we find out that they begin to so-called play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And there after 40 years, they enter into false worship again. And it's at that moment that the book of Deuteronomy is written. The Deuteronomy literally means second law. Yeah, duo Deuteronomy, the second law, right? Son, I told you to brush your teeth every morning. Let me make it very clear. You got to get up out of your bed. You got to go to the bathroom. You got to pick up your thing. Now put the toothpaste on and you got to brush your teeth. So th this is what happens. God is our father, right? And when we're disobedient, we don't follow him the first time. He makes that law more explicit. The De book of Deuteronomy is the laws of Exodus, but just made explicit. Yeah. Made more careful. Made every day. You didn't figure it out the first time. I'm going to teach you the second time. So you can read the whole book of Deuteronomy if you have time. Joshua, Judges, and Ruth for next time, if you're able. Peter? Everybody take a breath. <laughs> that was awesome. Wild ride. Again, did not disappoint. Thanks for everybody for sticking with us through this. I hope, it, well, I know it was worth it uh, for you, and we're, we're on the edge of our seats for, uh, for the next one. Thanks for the homework. Father, you, you still have some time for those who can stick I've around. I've got time. It's really late on the East Coast, but we'll keep our time, our, our Q&A short for those that, you know, have to nice. Have to let's, well, let's get a couple in here at least. Um, Linda asks, she she says, I was raised Baptist. You stated the book of, Levit of Leviticus was written for the Levites who the rules are for. Why do many Protestant churches use this book to dictate how congregants are to live? Granted, they pick and choose the rules and have different interpretations, but they all refer to it as a map of life. I don't know what Protestant churches are doing. No, but look, no, I, I, I put a bad, I, I'll just say this. The book of Leviticus as the book of Deuteronomy has a lot of rules about how you're supposed to live and not live, right? And now you know why, okay? So if certain congregations are pulling out from those texts, moral uh, uh, teachings, it's because they're moral teachings, right? Don't do, do this and don't do that, right? In the book of Le Leviticus in particular, about how to worship. The book of Deuteronomy in particular, about relationships. Because the book of Deuteronomy is written because these guys get into bad relationships with the Moabite women. So here's what you do and don't do when it comes to the marital bed. There's lots of rules in there in Deuteronomy about that. Because God says, let me be clear, okay? So ultimately, that's the answer, right? That's why they're pulling out certain moral teachings from these books, because these books are written to make more explicit to my son that he's supposed to brush his teeth after I told him he's supposed to brush his teeth three times. Yes? Nice. Maria here on screen. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, so 
whenever I've read Exodus, I, I never understood why, you know, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so it seems like you ex- your explanation of him wanting to go against the Egyptian gods is why. Like he needed to be able to refute them. Am I on the right track with that? Yeah, but, but oftentimes things will be attributed to God that are due to man. And so the hardening of Pharaoh's heart happens because of what Pharaoh did. God allows it to happen. Okay. Um, and this happens, by the way, uh, in the in the death of so many people in the Old Testament, right? There are, as I, was, I made point, a point earlier that last week, that there are many that are walking around this earth that are the walking, they're the living dead or the walking dead, right? They're, 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 they're dead in their hearts. I tell, I tell my boys, did, did God said to Adam and Eve, they would die. If they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, did they die? Did they die? Angela? Not yeah. then, but later. Ah, well, but God said you'd die. Did they die, Teresa? They died in their relationship with God. Right. And so, which is, which is the key thing, right? And what happens in their bodies, God gives them time to repent, but they're already dead. So when God allows them to their bodies to die, he's simply letting what should have happened before, but in his mercy, he stopped it from happening so that he would allow them a time to repent. But once they take the side of the evil one and they begin to draw others into it, then the Lord says, pulls back the shield, right? And allows to be revealed in their bodies what was already true. Okay, why am I answering that question? Hardening God's heart, right? Hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, that that oftentimes we what we perceive taking place, we attribute to the Lord, um, when in fact it is an allowance of the Lord in the freedom that we have to do this very thing, right? But Pharaoh made a choice. He was free to make that choice. He could have listened. He could have listened to to Moses and to God, but he didn't. And and think about it. How blind do you have to be? I mean, we'd read the gospel account, right? How blind do you have to be? The guy's walking on water and raising people from the dead, multiplying loaves and fishes. How blind do you have to be, right? The Nile is turning into blood. The frogs are stinking on the ground, okay? Moses' staff is turning into a serpent. Your firstborn are over. How blind do you have to be, right? But... Uh, but Pharaoh fought against everything that God had given him. And in that fighting against the Lord, he hardened his own heart. And God said, finally, okay, well, the results of your actions are now going to take, the fruit of your choice is now going to be revealed and your heart will be hardened. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Father, David asks if you could explain what a patriarch is in the sense of someone who leads or represents God's people in this time. It, yeah, know, it's a, is the, 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 the ruler, right? The father ruler is really what it means, okay? Um, and you're talking, so you're talking about the time of the patriarchs. They're the father rulers. Right? They're the father kings. The time of the patriarchs is the time of the genealogy we've been memorizing, right? Do it with me really quick here, guys. Ready? We're going to do it real quick, okay? So I should have done it during the time. Uh, God created two people in paradise. Their names were Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel, and and Cain killed Abel. God gave them a new son to replace Abel. His name was Seth, 
right? And Seth had a great, 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 great grandson. His name was? Enoch. He walked with God and he was taken up and he did not see death. Enoch had a great, great grandson or whatever the generation were, was Noah, right? Who was a righteous king. His Melech, his Melech Zedek is the righteous king. Um, and he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem received the, the blessing. And Shem had a great, 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 great grandson. His name, he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. His name was Abraham. Abraham. Okay, Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob had received a new name, Israel. And Israel had 12 sons. Among his 12 sons, which one received the blessing? Judah, Judah. right? And Judah had a son. His name was Perez. And Perez and Judah go underground during the time of the Exodus so that they don't get their heads cut off. And we're not going to hear about them now. But you know who's in Egypt? You know who's living in Egypt? Perez is in Egypt. He's a slave in Egypt. Watch this. Come here. Vincenzo, jump up here. Give me the sons of from Abraham on. You, we did the earlier ones. Go from Abraham. Abraham's, go ahead. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Judah was the father of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab. Abinadab was the father of... Nashon. Nashon was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. Okay, I think, you've, I think you've skipped Solomon somewhere in there. But it's okay. The point is, all of these guys, all of these guys were either slaves in Egypt or they, were, they crossed through the 40 years of wandering. We know their names, but you don't know them yet. Because you got to keep reading until the genealogy comes back up. Yeah? There you go. Peter, I don't remember what the question was, but I think I answered. <laughs> that was go good. Ahead. No, it, that's awesome. And it, it ties to another one. Um, if you Three, so we're going to get you. Don't worry. Somebody asked what the connection between the blessing in Genesis here with the patriarchs and the blessing that we receive from priests in the new covenant. What's the connection? Oh, everything, right? <laughs> what happens when a thing is blessed? What happens when a thing is blessed is the is filled with the life of God, right? A holy thing, when you call it after a thing is blessed, it's, it's a holy thing, right? We don't throw it in the trash. We we burn it if we had to get rid of it because it's holy, right? So the the, the blessing of God is the gift of God's life. It's God's love for us. And that love for us is passed on through our hands because he wants us to be in his image and after his likeness. The blessing of God is the bestowing of God's life upon his people. And so, I mean, we can talk about this in all sorts of ways, but, but, but the blessing of a, of a person bestows that reality upon the person that they might become a child of God, a son of God, an heir of the throne, a priest king of God's kingdom, so that you, a Christian, might exercise dominion once again in your families, with your children, in your work, with our society, and go out and transform it by tilling and keeping it and making it grow as the garden of paradise, okay? So when you, when you, when you, when you receive a blessing, bow down your head to the Lord and get ready to receive a mighty gift, a mighty gift which is a transformative of your life and what you are doing, Yeah? This is why blessings bring about healing in people's lives, why blessings forgive sins, why blessings hand on gifts, okay? 
That's what it's all about. This is what Jesus has come to give us back. Amen. Thank you, Father. Uh, Teresa, go ahead. So you mentioned like the, the two things to take note that are our sins follow us and God brings good out of evil. And then you were talking about um, the three, three passages in Genesis where Abram, Abraham, right. Abram, and then Abraham goes down to Egypt. Yeah. And then um, yeah. I stole then that, have, by the way. I stole that from uh, Umberto Casuto. I mentioned okay. him last time. The guy's awesome. Okay. okay. And, and so I, I'm hearing this and then I'm, I'm thinking of passages in, in the, the uh, prophets, but what I'm hearing through this is Israelite being unfaithful and God still blessing. Is that yes. the correct thing to be uh, following? Absolutely. Isn't that okay. the story of the Exodus? Right. God remains faithful while they remain unfaithful. It's the story of Exodus. It's the story of salvation history. It's the story of everything. While we remain unfaithful, while we continue to struggle in our faithfulness, God is always faithful to us. He's always there willing to restore us to that which he wants for us. And, and I just I should put a little PS on there. That, and that restoration is, is a restoration. It, paradise wasn't back there. It's ahead of us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you make the sign of the cross, you make present the kingdom of God in your life. When you begin the mass, the, 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 the angels, are, well, I say the angels descend upon earth. Well, the earth is taken up into the heavenly abode. So, so th this is the whole, the, the whole the idea of the restoration is, is God's faithfulness to us to restore us to that which he planned for us from the very beginning. Unfortunately, we lose sight of what we, he did for us and how he made us, the paradigm, the home, what it looked like. We forget what it looks like. So when it comes back again, we, we lose. I mean, this is where I wanted to go, right? When they, in, in, in Joshua, we're going to go there next time, the very beginning. When they enter back into the promised land, what's the first thing they're going to meet? Just like, just like uh, Jacob had to, had to wrestle with the angel right outside as he's entering in. Who's he going to meet? What did God put at the edge of the garden? The angels. What's Joshua and Israel going to meet right when they enter the promised land? The angels. What's going to guard the way to the tomb of Jesus? The angels. Every single time we have to meet the angels and then enter in to the place where the angels live. Awesome. Father, we uh, we should probably wrap up here for people, but I can't let you go without answering the question that you you did ask us to hold on to from way back in the beginning. And that is Nobody what did what did St. Paul say that Melchizedek or sorry, why did St. Paul say uh, uh, yes. Melchizedek so had no super father? Important. Super important. Yeah, remember he says he has no father or mother. So I've been in Bible studies, people people say, ah, see, he's a divine being or something. Do you think he's the eternal God, Melchizedek? No, he, he's not. What is, and this is what context, context, a text without a context is no text at all. I got my sons over here that text, no text at all. What's, what is St. Paul arguing about in the epistle to the Hebrews? First of all, who, what's the epistle to the Hebrews? Who's it written to? And, and St. Paul's trying to claim that Jesus is the high priest. Okay. And they're saying he can't be the high priest, right? Because he's not a Levite. And St. Paul says, you're right, he's not a Levite. 
because he is the restoration of God's original plan. The, 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 the father or mother that St. Paul is talking about is the father or mother of Melchizedek's priesthood, right? The priest of Melchizedek knows no father or mother because it is the priesthood not only of Melchizedek, it is the priesthood of Noah, which is the priesthood of Enoch, which is the priesthood of Seth, which is the priesthood of Abel, which is the priesthood of Adam, which is the priesthood of God. And that, my brothers and sisters, has no father or mother. That's the point that St. Paul is making in Hebrews. Not that somehow Melchizedek is some you know, quasi-divine figure without father or mother like that. He's arguing about Jesus's priesthood. Nice. Thank you, Father. This is excellent. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, could you, before we leave, uh, give us your blessing tonight, Father? The blessing of the Lord and his mercy be upon you through his grace and love for mankind at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.